This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Tom Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop. And hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast today is Jonas Vossler, founder and CEO of FlowLab. The tools we provide, they're going to help people be their own mental coach, so to speak, to develop kind of self-leadership capabilities that take me through the day in a way that I feel for myself is positive and productive. And what that can mean is, you know, ability to focus when I need to, ability not to focus when I don't want to, the ability to recover, the ability to be emotionally balanced, the ability to motivate myself. There are so many micro decisions that I talked about that can be decisive throughout a given day for me to make this a productive day. This is Jonas. He's fascinated by everything that happens at the intersection of new technologies, business and society. He's convinced that in today's world, innovation is the primary driver for economic growth and for the change in our society. It is due to the progress induced by a variety of innovations and inventions, especially in health and technology, that the population in Western industrialized countries enjoys a high standard of living. Still, we all experience a variety of mental distractions and emotional distress in our workdays that prevent us from finding the motivation, the focus and the energy to perform at our best and use our time productively. And that's exactly the problem Jonas wants to solve. And hence he founded FlowLab, a company that's on a mission to help people find more flow in their lives. And that inspired me. And hence I invited Jonas to my podcast. We explore why, with all the technology around, it's still so hard to be productive and deliver peak performance in our work. We also discuss the journey that Jonas has been on to solve this massive problem. He shares examples about the strategic decisions that he had to take, the challenges that he faced in gaining traction in the market, funding his business, and what was required to be ready for that in the first place. Lastly, we discuss his big lessons learned to create a software business that is resilient and what it takes to build something that people just keep talking about. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, what being crystal clear about segmentation actually means and why focusing on just demographics is just not enough. Secondly, why having a compelling vision and realistic optimism are key ingredients to build resilience in your SaaS business. Thirdly, that to become a remarkable SaaS business, you have to invest in the soft skills around communication. 
especially when emotion gets involved. And fourthly, that the pressure to get funding is nothing compared to the pressure that's building once you get the funding. So hi Jonas, welcome on the podcast today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I mean, I got to speak to one of your colleagues last week over Lunch Club. And it's like it happened again. Great platform as well. <laughs> we got to speak about the company that you founded in 2018, Flow Lab. And what is this all about? And that inspired me because of the purpose that I have with my podcast. You know, it's like really connecting the dots between the value that we can unlock when people and technology blend in the right way. So before we start talking about FlowLab and the app that you've created, just a little bit about you. You've listened to a couple of my podcasts, possibly. Yeah. One of the questions I like to ask in the beginning is if you have to describe yourself in two or three words as an entrepreneur, what words would come out? The words that I would have loved to come out is that I'm authentic, passionate, and mission-driven. And this is why you know, tech entrepreneurs on a mission, I really love to discuss how the entrepreneurial path can actually be how realistic this is to maintain a mission and to be driven also. Maybe I would even say vision-driven to correct this and how difficult it is to sustain this one across the entrepreneurial path. Yeah. Yeah, a very interesting one. And of course, a question that comes up a lot in the tribe that I run as well. But possibly the word mission and vision-driven, maybe it's vision-driven at the end maybe because that drives the mission as well. Yeah. Very good. I like the three words, authentic, passionate, and I think they all connect to each other. Particularly the passion comes from something and the mission comes from something. So what are you passionate about? <laughs> so I'm really passionate about specific topics like the flow state that we can discuss in the greatest detail that you want to. But it's generally, it's my passion for trying to find tools. And these can be technologies that are external to the body or even internal like technologies you could quote unquote say technologies, everything that the body has inherently, and that there's like the software and the hardware, and how we can help each other as the human beings to use these tools as best as we can in order to live a productive and fulfilling life. And to also blend in this endeavor as much as we can, knowledge from research, because I'm passionate about connecting the dots, seeing what is known and what is not known, what are the frontiers in research, how this is kind of implemented into everyday life and technology, and then finding new solutions, connecting these dots, what's the next thing here that is important that we can add into this mix in order to help the human being a little bit better, being more happy and productive. And when I say productive, I just want to mention it also in the, in the context of the flow state. We're talking about a conceptualization of productivity that is not just output-driven, but it's a feeling of productivity that also comes with this flow state. Like when you're feeling productive, it's something different than just, yeah, churning out output and crossing off tasks of your to-do list. This is what I'm passionate about, kind of an Great. Now we're going to be really interesting about the story behind FlowLab. So what's the big idea behind FlowLab? The big idea is to help people experience more flow, like on a very broad level, but the details really are some of the things I'm passionate about is really figuring out how we can use these types, two types of technologies to understand emotional and mental states even better than humans might be able to do by themselves. So what that means is we're like kind of going through life and through our everyday, sometimes on an autopilot mode. And it seems like we're kind of yeah, swayed by external circumstances when it comes to how we feel and, for example, our mental states, how focused we are. I would like to use FlowLab as a tool and using the data, but also using 
the content itself, like the interventions we provide to help people understand better in any given moment in what mental and emotional states they are, and then teach tools in terms of actually language, in terms of how we use the internal language of the body, breath, things we say to ourselves, to help us regulate ourselves into a state that is very conducive to happiness and productivity. It's called the flow state. And everything we can do to integrate technology into this. And when I say that, I mean data that can come from like external devices, but also combining these, may they be, for example, physiological data through fitness trackers, but combining these with what people say in these given moments. So subjective experiences, creating an intelligence behind there, driven by software, by machines that really understands how an emotion expresses itself and can be measured and pinpointed by using the technology and then being able to regulate this in order to bring people into these flow states. It's kind of what we're wow. looking for. So, I mean, I understand a flow state. And I mean, I realize also for myself that when I realize that I've been in a flow for one or two or three hours, it's the most productive time you can get. So often we are distracted and, you know, it's actually working against the flow, but that's super powerful. And to get people into a flow state faster, yeah, that's helpful for everybody, both if it's talking about individuals, but also for business, I would say. For businesses um, too, yeah. So what do you believe is the opportunity if we get this really right? Like what is sort of the before and after that you see? <laughs> if you'd like to think big is on a smaller scale, but already a big step to start there is to give us as human beings back the control to put us back in the driver's seat so to speak, in terms of our subjective experience. I try to explain that, you know, we're kind of swayed by everything around us in external circumstances. But if we're again able to develop mental and emotional skills that put us back into a situation where we can control our experience, that would be like the very first step. And that actually means understanding how evolution has built us how the hardware that we've been given, like the systems within our body, how they interact with our external environment, and then using kind of a new software. So what we're learning in terms of skills to regulate that in a direction that we wanted to have. When we start there, the individual human being is going to be just a more balanced and happy person, hopefully. And this is kind of, is my interpretation of, you know, if you want to change the world, to so be the change you want to see in the world. You probably know the yeah. saying. And you can interpret this in many different ways, but just from starting with the individual person, that is a happier and more balanced person with more capacity to also interact with other human beings in a positive way, not from a standpoint of anger, from a standpoint of mistrust, but really being in tune with him or herself. And then we can also thrive as a society is my idea, or even you know, thrive as a group, thrive as a business, thrive as an institution. But we're all like cogs in this very big machine system of society. There's so much complexity and also importance in solving this on a political and institutional level. But my opinion is we have to start simultaneously with ourselves. And this is where we, we would like to contribute with FlowLab specifically. Yeah. Yeah, that's the best way to do it at the end. It starts with the spark, the one, and then the two, and then the three, and then grows from there. It reminds me of that video that I saw about how a movement is created. <laughs> it's a video on YouTube with the dancer. <laughs> but sometimes we take it too big. We try to kind of create and change something like almost untouchable. And at the end, it's about starting with yourself. I would say so, because we're kind of caught, or you could say we're endowed. It's a present with our biology. 
but if we're not really using it for the purposes that also serve greater society of we're not capable of using it yeah. because we're caught by our emotions because we're taken back by limiting beliefs this i think in any given situation at the end of the day even in complex systems it's people that are acting and you can try to influence the culture of a given system you can set up rules but at the end of the day there are micro decisions and the level of the individual human being if the person is also going to adhere in a goal directed and act in a goal directed way so to me it's always very important to not forget about the human being and personal development as a spark that needs to be exactly, set exactly. for change I'm doing a project right now for one of my customers in the UK to help them with their value proposition around a suite of products that they have. And one aspect of that is employee performance and how this whole transition from the annual appraisals towards more ongoing feedback. One aspect of that is, of course, yeah, how people feel and how they're hurt and how they are yeah, helped or coached on a day-to-day -day basis to, well, first of all, develop, but of course, also to increase the productivity and performance in a company. Do you believe that a tool like FlowLab could be of benefit in a business situation? Because you initially talked about B2C, business to consumer. Yeah, I would say the way we try to solve this challenge is more directed towards the, like I said, the individual human being in the sense that the tools we provide, they're going to help people be their own mental coach, so to speak, to develop kind of self-leadership capabilities that take me through the day in a way that I feel for myself is positive and productive. And what that can mean is, you know, ability to focus when I need to, ability not to focus when I don't want to, the ability to recover, the ability to be emotionally balanced, the ability to motivate myself. There are so many micro decisions that I talked about that can be decisive throughout a given day for me to make this a productive day. And we also get approached by companies in the context because if you kind of manage to amplify the individual productivity this has bottom line effects for companies as well yeah. we would design the product very differently if we were actually approaching b2b as a you know strategic pillar that we prioritize which we okay. don't we're giving workshops for companies but actually you have to be very specific in terms of the need you want to solve up to the like detail of how you talk to people but just starting with the value proposition it would be a different product if we wanted to sell it in terms of the ability to measure stuff, to have these performance reports that you just talked about, the analytics. It's something that is very interesting, but we're going to have to start somewhere and we see a great potential in addressing individual B2C needs yeah. and making progress there. So okay. we kind of, it's a matter well, of, of focus nope. for us, but I do see potential for sure. We also see this in terms of the demand, yeah. especially also given the current you know, pandemic situation and self-leadership becoming just an even more important skill. Than exactly. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's an interesting one in itself. And let's talk a little bit about the journey of how this all started. So what was the aha moment? What sparked the idea to say, now it's the time? <laughs> I hate to tell this because it's, I mean, very cheesy, very cheesy moment, the way it happened. Because the idea really as part of a bigger feeling that built up over time, but kind of in this moment, I have to do this, came during a meditation. And of course, what we're doing is also guided meditations, guided self-coaching exercises. So kind of sometimes I think sounds like I make this up, but it was really the case. But a combination of months and years of just pursuing a feeling, I would say. So with my background, I have a business background, but I was always driven and torn towards the human part of it. So the psychology, the business psychology part, which I also pursued. I did research on motivational psychology in applied game science, which is motivational psychology 
about why games work so well. One part of it is how games are structured and designed. The other part is the players and what they bring to the table in terms of personality, in terms of self-regulatory skills. I was super interested in that. I was already doing research and the big part of it is, is the flow state. Games bring people into flow in a very systematic way. It's super exciting to me personally. But I had a couple of dots that needed to be connected. At the same time, I was always trying to kind of, even in the early years of my 20s, self-optimize in every possible way. It started with physical self-optimization, nutrition, fitness, maybe even out of a stance of insecurity. So also this is part of my self-development journey, but also trying to optimize the mind. So I was always using meditation, mindfulness meditation as a tool. So yeah. you could say abusing it, but using it for my purposes to perform better, to perform That's more sustainably cool. in the university context or even at my job later at the university as a researcher. So and another, you know, threat in this is my passion for sports. So I was a very amateur, but very ambitious and passionate basketball player and coach with the team here in Berlin, Germany. And I was just fascinated of how this is possible that the mental part plays such a big role in terms of team performance, but also individually that people can actually get in the zone they can't miss and only make right decisions. So I had these threats like simultaneously in my mind. And yeah, so I kind of woke up in this moment. I was doing the meditation. I was like, okay, why I'm researching the flow state. I'm trying to optimize my mind. I know how meditation apps work. I'm doing gamification work in my everyday research. Why is there not a tool that is kind of like the way that physical fitness tools are gamified and have been gamified before, but this for the mental state. So we kind of have a convergence of mental and physical fitness training. And an inspiration was this popular fitness app from Germany. It's called Freeletics. And this is why I also initially called my company Flowletics to embody exactly this vision. And from then, like this was the point where I kind of connected all the dots. There was no way back for me. I had to kind of make it work, get out of my job um, in the university, which I appreciated and loved a lot. And a shout out to my professor, Professor Dr. Jens Junge, but there was no way back for me. That's a beautiful story. I mean, there's nothing cheesy about that. Come on. It sounds like an epiphany and it's a different discussion. No, but, but I mean, yeah. these things come from being mindful and being in that moment and reflecting on the things that matter. And that's why it's invented in the first place. I can truly see that. It's the, in those moments where indeed, if I, I do a lot of journaling, yep. in the moment of epiphany moments, I got there by connecting dots that I didn't see before. Beautiful. That's my flow state, actually. Struggling following an assumption that there is a solution, following a feeling that you want to get there, going through the struggle phase until it just solves itself. It's beautiful. The dots connect. It is. Exactly. So now, then you started the company in 2018 and you started developing things. What I'm always interested in is like, there are so many things on the market. And I think you already highlighted a couple of aspects where you wanted to say, okay, well, of course there are mindfulness, of course there are meditation apps, but it's maybe in the combination of things where you create defensible differentiation, as I call it, like really to create something different. So what were the things that you decided to do or not to do in order to stand out? Beautiful question. And also the way you framed it, I would say, and it's a tough pitch to investors to say, well, it's the combination of things. If things play out and, you know, an attention to detail, then I can show you defensibility in a market that is already dominated by huge unicorns, like what is billion dollar company in US dollars. So yeah, but that's the way I pitched it. The first part is getting the details right in terms of answering the question, how can we help a potential customer or user identify with what we do? This is where I started in the first place. 
I know it sounds subtle, but you have to get this communication right, especially when we're talking about lifestyle products. And ours is not a, maybe to be clear on that, like mental coaching for productivity does not necessarily have a therapeutic aspiration, but it's a lifestyle product such as fitness products. But if you want people to choose your solution and not the others, you have to convey and stand for values that are important for the person. Exactly. And just by self-reflection, I had the assumption that I'm using all these tools that are grounded, which I was also, I went on the rabbit hole of mindfulness meditation, of mindfulness, the philosophy, the Buddhism philosophy. I went on the rabbit hole, but for me, it was not the everyday values that I identified with. I was using the tools and I felt like I was abusing the tools because they were presented, yes, through Headspace and Calm in a more pragmatic way, but the philosophy behind it is still a different one than what I stand for when my goal is actually improvement, is actually self-improvement and striving for specific goals. And in the mindfulness sphere, it's a red flag. One of the major mindfulness pillars is non-striving. So don't strive for bigger goals, but they are hard to consolidate in terms of values and identity. And my assumption was just, yes, these tools are popular. There's science that shows the benefits more and more, but are people, do they actually feel drawn to these tools because they also identify with it and say, well, there's a community behind it that thinks the way I think. So repackaging was the first part. Repackaging the product where the way we call it, I think, I don't know if it was us, but since we're on the radar, the way these things are called are not just mental health, but mental fitness. And I like this framing. We stand for mental fitness, yeah. which has this progressive notion of I'm trying to improve something, which is okay in this context. Then I have a philosophical stance of what it means to be mentally fit not being mindful for the purpose of being mindful, but the broader goal is to experience flow. And flow always has an activity. Flow always and only happens if you have clear goals. So it actually is goal striving. It's a complete different in terms of the promises you can make to people. Because in this way, if you package it the right way in a coherent way, then you can be a product that stands for productivity, for sustainable performance, and just in this sense, can be a differentiator in terms of the ability of people to identify with your solution and not another one. Let me make a small interruption here. Jonas just made an excellent remark about how critically important it is to be crystal clear on segmentation and positioning. Flowlab might well play in the category of mental health tools, but within this category, they're addressing a micro niche. To reach their ideal audience requires them to go far deeper than the typical demographic segmentations. They have to arrive at the level of psychographics, people with different worldviews, different needs and wants. And doing this enables them to be far more effective in their marketing, in their sales, but also in their product development. And you can master these traits as well. I have various options for you to start. First, just go to valueinspiration.com to learn about the masterminds and the work streams to put the fundamental building blocks in place to fast track the growth of your software business. And as you're there anyway, don't forget to grab a free Kindle version of my book, The Remarkable Effect, to start sparking new inspirations in the next 30 minutes. Back to the interview. And when you got that framing, then you can also do things in terms of measurability, in terms of maybe even gamification that are more difficult to implement in a context where these things are looked at as not you know, being conducive to being mindful or not being in line with the mindfulness. So when we think about measuring actually the flow state, when we think about maybe even comparing like a flow score that people have, when we think about setting journeys with weekly goals and even personal development goals, from the outset, people 
they might see us like a meditation app, but it's a meditation app with a very specific framing that allows for product tweaks that are coherent with the message. So yeah, I talked very long about this, but it's also because you framed it very nicely. If these things, technology, then of course the content, how we are going to help and how this is informed by research, but most importantly, the overarching concept of what people are looking for and what they identify with, they have to align with each other in order to have like really a product that has potential to yeah, address a market need or a target group in a more coherent way than before. Fascinating. So one of the people that I always admired, of course, is still do, but he's not there anymore. Steve Jobs, someone else kind of met. <laughs> <laughs> he always said, innovation is not about what you do, but what you say no to. So were there any specific things you said really no to in that journey? In the process of developing the company? Yeah. No, the company or the product. One thing that I can only think of now is really the way we want to communicate. We actually have do's and don'ts, but this is something I actually just described in greater detail because we're so focused on getting these details right that in the sessions we write or in the, let's say, messages we put on advertisement or even the content, the way we write it, we don't want to use very specific words. It's a very detailed, but whatever does sound too soft to spiritual and i would like to mention that i have really nothing against this is really about being coherent with what people that we address try to hear and these assumptions sure. so there's a couple of words we don't use in terms of and this is very difficult it's not great business advice now but if you write a meditation session and reflect on your internal world it very quickly sounds very soft and emotional and this is the point where a person who does not identify with these values or is not open to those might actually check out. So we're making sure that, yeah, we're not talking in too much of a vivid or I don't know the word, like flowerly language, so to speak. Uh -huh. Get your point. So this is something we say no to going with the trend of mindfulness, I would say. It's a very... You're addressing something completely different by, by using a number of maybe the concepts or principles of it, but I completely get what you mean. I'm talking in my book about it in hitting the right nerve. Hmm. For your audience, you hit the right nerve in a different way. And you can actually put them off if you take the different language. There's a choice in riding the wave of huge trend of mindfulness and mindfulness meditation. There are hundreds of copycats that also work because they get different details right or because they're marketed in a more in a smarter way or because the market is just super big but you could ride the wave of yes we're also a mindfulness meditation app but we deliberately don't want to use these words and also the same language that's one thing that so, i can think of no it's about standing out you know we talked about defensible differentiation now you got it i also use it in the communication to the market of course what was the hardest thing for you to crack in this journey Oh, so the journey to me personally, and also when I compare myself to some of your other guests, to me, it really has just begun also in terms of my personal development as a tech entrepreneur. So some of the learnings that I can share here, they might be a little bit business related, but they are also kind of related to my personal development. And, you know, some of the hardest things to crack for me as a CEO is to understand the fundraising game <laughs> was one of the hardest things because it's kind of a lot of things that I had to learn fastest around networking, how important a network is, but also understanding the story you need to build as a company in order to be ready for fundraising, that this sometimes does not necessarily, it can be connected, but there can be trade-offs between creating customer value and creating a fundraising story. It can be, depending on what stage you're in. Sure. And understanding that it's my job 
as a CEO of a company to focus on the story and to acquire resources. So for us, you said it, we founded the company in 2003, all of us 18, three years ago, all of us first time founders. And we all had to crack this for ourselves to kind of get a foot in the game of acquiring enough resources to actually be able to have a planning horizons that allows us to do something and not just to be in the mode of acquiring resources. So the cracking of this very first step was very tedious for us. We had to prove to be resilient, but actually understand the type of game we were playing as a early stage technology company with first time founders that took us time, took us nerves. What is the biggest key takeaway from it? It's a sales process. <laughs> it's it sales. It's sales. And the key takeaway is to think about fundraising strategy because there are different approaches and this strategy has to be aligned with who you are, your resources and networks and what you're well at. Because you could approach fundraising as a numbers game, depending on the stage, like you always have to. So you always have to approach it as a numbers game, but you could also yeah, reach out to so many people just to hope that it kind of follows through. Or you look at the network you have, what you're good at, and you try to bring more quality into this. But it really depends on your resources. So looking at, like I said, the resources you have in the team, the network you have already built, sometimes it might actually make sense if you don't have the context to just play a numbers game and reach out to as many people as possible. But I learned it's, this is probably very, has many parallels to a sales process as many might know it. And this yeah. was like an early learning for me personally. So you went the quality way? <laughs> we're kind of a little bit lucky in terms of being thrown and given access to a pretty good network here in Berlin because we were accepted as one of the first companies when a new accelerator, the APX by Axel Springer and Porsche built here in Berlin. And Jörg Reinbold, the managing director, he has a great network. And when you're performing well, they also grant you access to this. And it was also kind of a first stamp of approval. It allowed us to build our network faster. But at some stages in the fundraising, we had also to reach out to people we, of course, did not know. So we kind of, we were in the middle. We used yeah. quality leads, quality introductions in our network, which we had to build first. So before we started this real fundraising phase, we had to build stuff for one and a half years because nobody believed us that we can, well, why would they, right? We had no track record and the market is crowded. So we had to survive this phase. But then when we wanted to raise even more money, we also reached out in a quantitative way to many people. That we didn't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah, there's always valuable lessons to learn. But I mean, it's again, the whole story around differentiation is a key one again. And like, how do you, you know, like, why you? And of course, experience comes in place and all the other things. But it's also about like, what is the big idea behind the product? And do they believe in that? Interesting. So, yes, I mean, the product is available. Subscribe to it. So, what did you learn selling this? I mean, getting into market because I mean, I come from the B2B space. You're definitely kind of betting first on B2C which possibly is even harder because it's much more about volume. So what are key lessons learned there? We're just in the process of learning this, like going to market with a more systematic approach, especially now that we have VC funding, we're going to have to look for scalability even more and even more short term. So this is something we are learning right now. I think there's just because you compared it to B2B sales and go to market, I would say it's just more risk attached to trying to conquer a B2C market and making the business model work. And it's a fine balance between having to invest resources in order to understand does this work at a scale, at a bigger scale than you are right now, and not actually wasting the money. And while we are forced to grow, because we want to show and prove scalability, 
the risk amounts. Because in the meantime, you have to figure out a way, and these are the details that we're learning right now, a channel that actually works. And one of the learnings, especially, I mean, we can have a whole discussion about the changes in the advertising industry right now, especially with the ad transparency introduction. But quite generally, what we see, improvements, we're going to have to make them, again, based on our messaging. So what we need to focus on is finding the right way to talk to people. Like you optimize the creatives, for example, for paid marketing and performance marketing campaigns to find, and these can be like, strikingly small details of why an ad works and why not. It can be the image, it can be colors, it can be a message. And of course, everything before ATT was much better trackable, but now you can still optimize the performance of each of these ads. And again, here we have to learn to experiment a lot and you might find a gold nugget in terms of the way you talk, in terms of the messaging, in terms of the ad creative that works. But that's what I mean when I say risk. It might also not happen. And on the way, we're burning money. So interesting game to play. Yeah, exactly. I can introduce you to a couple of people that have been on my podcast that are the specialists in this area with the technology that they are creating. But that aside, I'm thinking Beautiful. of uh, <laughs> Kuhn from Alpha One and from Jonathan, who's actually in Berlin as well, I think. He's got his neuroscience technology to come up with the perceptions people have of certain words. And that's Ooh, exactly what I think what you're I looking like for. It. like it. Yeah. So what are you most proud of achieving so far with this? I mean, are there any stories from customers or from people that have said, okay, this is working for me and it's changed my life? <laughs> these things, they definitely make me very happy. We have these customer feedbacks. But one of the things I'm most proud of before I talk about those is to actually have started this and being still here. <laughs> sure. But this is for me personally. As for the company, it's beautiful to, but these are also, you know, impacted by different factors, but it's beautiful to see that the kind of vision and message we try to send out to the world, that it's perceived very well. And that it's also a trend, like we're hitting a nerve because we've been featured in the app store in the German speaking markets a couple of times. It's just a good feeling for us. They won't make or break our business model, these features as of now, but it's cool to see that what we are pursuing as a goal is also something that is important in the eyes, not just of the consumer, of course, it's the most important thing, but also media, it's relevant. It's the things we talk about. So I'm basically just proud to being like a part of the system that tries to improve people's health and well-being through technology and being recognized. This is pretty cool to yeah. be part of something that is important. Yeah, that's maybe also something to kind of dig into right now. I mean, I've started to write my second book, which is about remarkable resilience. And I'm really fascinated always by the stories of how do you build a software company that not only bounces back from something that's adversity or well, the negative, but actually gets stronger from it. You mentioned the word resilience a couple of times already. Relevance, being recognized, the world is moving extremely fast, it's heavily competitive. What are some of yeah, the things that you believe give you resilience as a company? That's a very interesting question, especially in the context of the size of our company, because what gives, I think personally, in the early stages, small team, not much structure within the team, not so much based on processes, but based on individual human performance and connection, I would argue that the biggest factor for resilience in this early stage is the resilience of the individual people again. It's going to become very interesting, and I'm going to read your book for sure, when we talk about resilience that is maybe even built in processes, that is built in the way we 
probably engage with customer feedback that is probably engaged in the way we use data as a company. I mean, to use data to make decisions. I think these things can make a company very resilient, but within, you know, there might be parallels if we compare it to a small company because we also have these processes, but it's more important that the people themselves, they're kind of, they are guided. And this is of course, part of my job and also of my co-founders they are guided by a vision and optimism, a realistic optimism that there are going to be ways to get there. Because on an everyday basis, if you're looking at the work that the people actually do, they might have fun doing this work, but sometimes it's frustrating. It's frustrating because we put in work and then the results in marketing or wherever, they don't, they don't really show. Or you put in work and it takes months for things to be implemented on the technical side and so on. Yeah. So it can be frustrating. But we have to kind of always remind people of, I would say, first of all, the vision and align those people. And this is an advantage of a small company. You can align 10 people under a vision if you're a good leader before it becomes more complex. And also prioritize on the human connection. So not just making this about the company, but really giving room for interaction so that for the individual, it really... Yes, it feels like work, but it feels also like just a social event to be part of this. So I can honestly only talk about this resilience on this individual level, which I, of course, think plays a great role and is more easily to be managed in a small company. But it's about understanding why yeah. you might be suffering and having the feeling of being not alone in this boat. And that's you know how I try to keep the company together, basically. Yeah. I mean, I hear a number of things that really connect the dots for me as well. I mean, absolutely the guidance about where are we going and to create this optimism as a team. Yeah. The individual, of course, are always important, but it's the alignment that makes it a team and that gives you velocity, I would say, rather than just speed. Yeah. The interesting thing, of course, is how do you keep that type of design or how can you orchestrate it as you grow, as you grow from 10 to 20, from 20 to 40? You tell me. You tell me. No, and, that's, uh, uh, we got to find out when I'm done with the book. But these are the stories that I'm looking for as well. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. And it's that personal resilience that, of course, that you influence a lot with your app, because that's what I think what it does. It keeps you motivated. It keeps you on top of what matters most. It gives you the moments like, where, how can you get into a flow and really drive your own performance? And that's fantastic. That's why I still think there's a link to B2B. <laughs> so... With, I think, 80% of all types of conversations I had about FlowLab, so be that investors, yeah. interview partners, mentors, this is the topic that always comes up. And this is something, you know, to your question before, we don't say consistently no to. It's not like not a... Yet. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's fine. That's good. Well, I mean, I've talked about my second book, The Remarkable Resilience. The first one was Remarkable Effects. It talks about the 10 traits of a remarkable software business. And uh, you build one in the meantime, you, you go to market, you say, I mean, it's proud to, to still be there and going for something big. But what do you believe is the secret to building a remarkable software business? <laughs> I would say I'm still lacking the experience and the hindsight to actually give too much of business advice here from the challenges we have on an everyday basis as we're striving to become a remarkable software business. I would again probably point towards soft skills in the communication because I see a lot of time being lost in communication, also in my company. So managing the way that people talk with each other, managing the way that emotions affect how we talk with each other, it probably applies to every company. But with software, 
I think everyone would agree. And we can talk probably also longer about this is really the ability to, I know everybody says that, but stay agile, stay agile in terms of listening to the customer, in terms of understanding what it means for your company, if you have to react to it or not. But I would add to that to compare everything that the data shows and also market trends to your vision that you have, because some things that might, and we are basically with FlowLab, I personally, I, oftentimes I don't listen too much to the data. And this is kind of the reality distortion that might be important, but it might be also disturbing at some point. But to be something that is remarkable, you probably have to kind of, you know, think outside of what is already in discussion and what is already accepted today. So, you know, even if we're getting these questions of, okay, you want to market your product by using a concept, the flow state, which is not so well known today. I'm actually seeing the hints where it's getting so much more important and so much more discussed and relevant as a universal topic all across fields, the workplace, professional sports, and so on. And I see the research and I kind of stick to this vision as we're trying to be agile in the short term. But if I want to be remarkable, I have to be a pioneer and I have to build today what is hopefully very, very popular, even more popular as mindfulness in five to 10 years. So I wouldn't say not listening too much <laughs> to the market and especially not the customers, but you know, sometimes you also have to stick to what you don't know, but what your gut feeling is in terms of where this should lead the sure. company in the long run. Yeah, it's, 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 it's the famous, people have been talking about this for so long for these type of things that everybody of course knows. And yeah, yeah I mean, what I always see if the companies that I work with is there is no map, you know, you try to create a change in the market to transform something that's not been done before. There's no manual to it. So you have to figure it out yourself. Yeah. And it also means that you're going to have people saying, I don't believe in this yet. I don't see it. No. I mean, if you believe in it strongly and you see what others don't see, of course, that's where innovation is coming from. Stick to it and have the persistence until it's really going bad. But <laughs> you say there's no valuable business advice here. I think you gave just top five things where a lot of people get inspiration from. So thanks cool. for that. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about it, the tidbits of wisdom that you've gained. So what is next? <laughs> I'm rambling. What's next? And what is your greatest aspiration to become in the next 12, 18 months? 12, 18 months, I will try to answer this for FlowLab as a company. So the way I would like to describe this is we would like to, for us next, I'm thinking about 12 to 18 months creating momentum. So sometimes, you know, and I don't think much farther than this, to be honest. So in the next 12 to 18 months, I'd like to create as much momentum as I can with what we're doing right now. And that means sometimes, you know, we're working on small things which we think are innovative. And then we're making small tweaks here and there in the marketing, in our messaging, and they don't show direct results. But I have the trust and faith in that these things will accumulate over time until if we just continue to improve on an everyday basis, making what we think are the right decisions, then at some point we will accelerate in a way that these compounding effects actually take shape. So the next step for us is to really take momentum because I've been carrying this vision for a very long time. I think we've been very resilient, but this has the way that these things should pay off is by getting, oh, you got it. <laughs> by this is, was just a way to build momentum. So with everything we do, looking for this to fall into place. And this means, of course, business-wise that we find ways to grow exponentially because we have ability to grow, but really to kind of kick into the next gear. It also means being perceived in the public as something much, much bigger than we are today. Yeah. And I mean, 
there's nothing I can promise, but this is what I have to believe in. If I want to continue to do this, that these things will fall into place and we will, everything we did so far is in order to create this momentum. This is what I see in the next 12 to 18 months. Very abstract, but this is the way I think about things. That's the way it works. I mean, it's chapter eight in my book for a reason. Remarkable <laughs> software companies master the art of creating momentum. And the chapter nine is they sell the idea, not the product. And that's exactly what you're up to. And that's, oh, yeah, that's what makes you create a bigger story in the market that is creating that movement that you're after. So you're on doing the right things here. And I want to wish you all the luck in getting this to market and making a big impact on as many people as possibly can be of people, let's put it in a people that, that aspire to be more productive and yeah, be that role model that they get their hands on your product yeah, to become that. Thanks for your openness, for sharing the wise lessons that you've learned in the three years that you've been in business. I found it fascinating. I mean, this is technology that is music to my ears. <laughs> That's why I started the podcast in the first place. So thank you for that. Well, I would like to thank you for also giving me the opportunity to reflect on these things. With all the business challenges, it's a personal journey for me and for my co-founders as well. So just being asked these questions is always beautiful. So thanks a lot for the opportunity. It's a pleasure. Thanks. And this ends my conversation with Jonas. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning in to this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Jonas Vossler, founder and CEO of FlowLab. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.